everyone, I'm Brandon Odo. And I'm Brian Bowling. And this is Critical Care Scenarios, the podcast where we use clinical cases, narrative storytelling, and expert guests to unpack how critical care is practiced in the real world. Hey everybody, welcome back to the podcast. Brian Bowling with you and with me here as always is Brandon Odo. That's me. So today, Brandon and I decided we would do another one of these where he and I just sort of talk about a subject in general. And today we thought we would talk about sort of career development for APPs in critical care. Now, I think this is a really important topic because I don't know about you, Brandon, I didn't get a lot of solid advice uh, in my training about this. I didn't. Um, and I think there's a reason for that. Uh, who would we have gotten that advice from? I mean, it's a, it's a very particular role, not necessarily just for critical care, but I think any you know, true specialty as a PA or an NP, I mean, they're all, they're all sort of niche areas. So unless you, I don't know, you know someone who's doing that, or maybe a, a professor in your program or something is in that area, um, is this a little unclear kind of how to go about getting into that and playing that role and, and building your career? Yeah, exactly. So I remember I listened, of course, all through school to all of the great FOMED podcasts that are out there. And I do, I remember sort of that last semester of school coming across an episode that was all about starting your career in critical care. And I thought, oh, this is perfect timing. And I listened to it and I got all this great advice, but it was a physician talking to critical care fellows. Right. And as it turned out, most of what he said didn't apply to me at all. Yeah. And so, you know, I took some of it, some of it's just good sort of career advice in general, but a lot of stuff, like you said, this is pretty specific, not only to our role as an a PA or an NP, uh, but also to critical care. And so you put those two together and you really kind of have um, a super subspecialty. Yeah. I, you know, when thinking about these things, I, I also often compare it to, you know, physician pathways just because that's more clearly defined. And my wife is a physician, so it's kind of familiar. But I mean, for them, it's always been much more clearly structured. You get into this pathway, and then you know you choose when to get off based on how much you specialize. But along that route, it, it's you're kind of on a train track, um, and that has the downside in that you have to do all that, which may include a lot of things you don't really want to do, things that are divergent from your interests, a lot of having to kind of be a trainee and do what you're told. But it has the upside that it's it's just laid out for you. You know what to do, at least until you finish all your training. Right. It's the opposite for us. We have the, the benefit that pretty much once you get out of school, you know, the world is your oyster. You can define your career however you want. The downside is you have to do that, which means you have to figure out what you want and create those opportunities and pathways for yourself. And there's just not a lot of guidance for that. So I thought it would be helpful today to talk through a little bit of this, not just for that early stage, but all the way kind of through, you know, the later stages of a career in this field. And just, you know, we have some thoughts on how to go about this, um, maybe good ideas, maybe some pitfalls that we've come across, um, and just a, a little bit of advice. Yeah, and I think that second part that you mentioned is going to be extremely important because for the all the lack of guidance there is for new providers, there's really a lack of guidance for those of us who have been doing this for a while. Like you said, as a physician, there's sort of, there's defined pathways at first. And then after you get out, then there's still sort of defined pathways, right? You can just sort of be a private practice physician all your career. You can go into academics. You can move your way up the ranks in terms of, uh, you know, in an academic setting to division chief and department chair. Uh, or, you know, within your private practice group, maybe you want to move up and become a partner or an owner. Um, but for those of us who are APPs, it's really not. I mean, I remember basically learning about the role is you get out of school, you get a job, and that's it. You do that for the rest of your career, which is really not true. Right. And, you know, maybe part of this is because, you know, a critical care APP is still a relatively young position. Absolutely. Uh, and certainly over time, I do think it's evolving into, you know, something that has more of these defined pathways in different settings. Um, but whatever the case, this is kind of where we're at. So let's talk step zero. Um, 
you are the PA or NP, because as always, those are generally the two pathways. I won't, we won't get into you know how you go about those things, but let's say you're in school. Let's say you're graduating soon. You're thinking about jobs, and you think that critical care might be what you're interested in. Um, you know, everyone else in your class is also thinking about jobs. Some of them are thinking about other things. Some of them may not know. Um, I think the, the first part here is figuring out, you know, is this the field for you? And that may seem obvious, but I actually think it is one of the places you can most easily go wrong here because I think not at all uncommon is people think this is for them. They get into it. They find a job. They get trained. Um, and then six, eight months, a year in, 15 months, they decide, you know what? Critical care sucks. And then they go off and they find some other job, hopefully, which is more suited to them. And that, you know, that is what it is. Best of luck to them. Um, I'd rather they did that than stick with a career they hate. But it, it's, it's not good for anyone. I mean, in many ways, it was a waste of their time. And on the other side, it's kind of a waste of time for the people who hired and trained them. So it behooves us all to try to get a sense for what this job's actually about before you commit to it, and you're not as committed as if you were in a you know three or four year training program or something like that. But it is still a commitment. Um, did you have any exposure to critical care before you graduated? You were an ICU nurse, right? Yeah, so I was an ICU nurse for about ten years before I became an NP, and I think now you're going to have to speak to the PA training, but I right. think from my limited understanding. Uh, from talking to my friend, PA friends and uh, and looking into it a little bit, uh, this may be a one of the fundamental differences in our training models. In that, I got a lot of critical care in my training. Um, really, with one exception, every rotation I did in school was in critical care in some form or fashion. Uh, and the one exception was I did a cardiology rotation. Um, that was my first clinical rotation. And it was a cardiology inpatient floor service that was in a place that that team functioned really more like hospitalists um, than true cardiology. They they kind of took a lot of uh, basically, you know, it, you have a heart. OK, we'll take you on our team um, and, and do sort of all the primary care management stuff. But after that, it was all critical care all the time for me. Now, I knew I wanted to go into critical care. So that was that was great for me. And I think different programs are different. My program, I think, had a, a big emphasis on this. Most of my faculty were critical care NPs. Um, I was telling a group of students last night, in my cohort, only one nurse that I can think of was not an ICU nurse when she started the program. And only two that I can think of didn't have plans to go into critical care after graduation. Yeah. Yeah, I think this is definitely somewhere where PAs and NPs differ. Um, for myself, you know, LPA programs require you to have some kind of patient care experience, um, but it's gotten a little lighter over the years. I mean, for me, I was an EMT for a number of years, but many of my classmates had kind of minimal experience, and I don't know hardly any of them who had had direct exposure to critical care. I had had really none, except that I was able to do a rotation in the ICU in school, but it was one. And it was almost my only inpatient rotation. So I, I do think that's a big difference between us. We've talked before about, you know, differences between PAs and NPs and training and things. Um, but even more so than kind of training differences, I think it's this exposure that makes the difference because I think that gives you guys a much better opportunity to figure out if this is even a field you're interested in. Not that it's perfect. You still have to, you know, be in that role of, you know, the provider, which is different from being the nurse. And in the end, that may not work out for everyone. But at least you know what the ICU is, what critical care looks like, what, you know, the patients are like, and so on. For us, I think the very best way to do that is to try to get a rotation in school. That can also set you up potentially for jobs and things. But it really, this, this, this kind of trial run in your own head of this is a, a field that you would actually like is so key. I thought I was going to go into emergency medicine. I'd been an EMT, and that seemed kind of appropriate. And then I, I did a rotation in the ED, and I was like, eh, maybe not. And then I did it in the ICU. And, of course, you know, this makes you uh, 
at risk for other confounding things. Maybe you had just a great rotation somewhere. You had great preceptors. It was a good environment. You got through a lot of stuff. Maybe you had a lousy one and that turns you off. I think that stuff is inevitable. But that's probably one of the better ways. Now, you can try to start even earlier. You can try to do things like shadowing someone you know in the critical care setting. Of course, you can try to research it, but I, I really think it comes down to the nitty-gritty of just what does it feel like to do that job? Yeah, I think the other piece of advice I would give, this is something someone told me. So I did, most of my career as an ICU nurse was in cardiothoracic surgery critical care. And I had sort of two options as I was getting near to graduation. One was doing working for a cardiothoracic surgery group. And one was working for a an ICU group. The ICU group was not potentially not going to have any cardiac coverage. And the cardiothoracic surgery group was potentially not going to have any ICU coverage. I was going to be doing mainly uh, some assisting in the OR and floor and clinic. And the other group might have critical uh, some cardiac coverage, but mostly it was going to be uh, different types of critical care. And I was having a hard time sort of deciding and a professor gave me a great piece of advice. She said, think about it this way. If you had to choose, would you want to do cardiac surgery and never go in the ICU? Or would you want to do ICU and never see a cardiac patient? And ultimately I thought about it and thought, yeah, I think cardiac surgery only interested me insofar as the critical care aspects of it. And if I had to pick, at, you know, at the time, I said, well, my ultimate dream would be to do cardiothoracic critical care. But she said, but if that's not on the table, which one would you choose? And I ultimately came down to, well, I'd rather be in the ICU and never see a cardiac patient than just do clinic cardiac surgery. So I think you have to really look at what about critical care interests you too. Yeah. And I think that gets that, you know, trying to unpack in your head all jobs have things you like and things you don't like. You, there is no like, you know, blissful euphoria job that's just happiness. That's called just, you know, being on opioids. But what you need to find is one where the things you like, you know, outweigh the things you don't like. And you can at least kind of contentedly tolerate the parts you don't like as much. So to me, kind of what defines the day-to-day -day work of critical care is this intersection of um, resuscitative medicine, um, you know, taking care of unwell, crashing patients, you know, making high-stakes decisions for them, manipulating their physiology very directly. Um, there's a procedural aspect of that, which is not the majority of the job, but is abundant. So that that's kind of the balance there. Some people want more. They want to be in the OR or something where all they're doing is procedures. Some people don't want any. That's our balance. Um, but it's those two things. So you need to be able to tolerate the sort of high stress part of it, um, which you may or may not be injured. Some people don't like that. They are unable to ever get to the point where they can embrace being on the spot and making decisions that may, you know, save someone's life or do the opposite. Um, some people want that. But you also need to be able to embrace the other part, which is like box checking and details and, you know, gilding lilies and you're know, rounding by systems and not forgetting heparin and things like that because that that's the that's the balance just like in emergency medicine there's this you know this tip of the iceberg of crashing patients and then there's all this other stuff that's like triage and primary care and things if you get in for one of those and you hate the other your job is not going to work out for you because they're both there Right. And for us, too. I mean, ideally, those are both things that you like, but at least that you are okay with. And you can be down with doing all of that every day. Right. Every job has the, the, what, the you know, what you could call the bread and butter of that job. And you've got to love the bread and butter to do the job. You can't, like you said, you can't go into emergency medicine if all you want to do is resuscitate crashing patients. Well, that's, that's a small part of it. If all you want to do is procedures in the ICU, that's a pretty small part of my job. You know, like you said, you have to love the mundane, the box checking, the details, uh, because that's what you're going to do for most of your day. Yeah. Now, kind of once you've decided you think this might be for you, the next part is probably actually 
finding a job. And we can maybe talk in a little bit about the possibilities of things like uh, postgraduate training programs. But just when it comes to, you know, regular jobs, um, it it's just a little unclear. And especially if you've maybe you're earlier in life, you maybe you went straight through college and your training program. Uh, and this is perhaps one of the first sort of, quote, real jobs you've had. Um, it's not always obvious how to go about this. Some people will do things like, you know, look on job listing websites. That's gotten very popular. You know, no one really looks at newspapers anymore or anything. But um, I think one of the, the not What's obvious things, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, uh, this is not where a lot of jobs are come by, to be honest. It's almost the last resort. A lot of jobs are filled in other ways, really more word of mouth, you know, through personal relationships. Uh, there's a ton of jobs that are filled by someone who did a clinical rotation somewhere, so they know them, they they know you, they like you, and then, you know, you follow up and say, hey, can I get a job here after I graduate? Um, I almost want to say that's one of the most common things. And then maybe next common is a little more word of mouth. You know someone who says, hey, I think there's a position here. They introduce you, that kind of thing. Still a personal connection. Um, and then, you know, you could, of course, blindly apply for jobs that you find, but there's just a lot of applicants for a lot of those jobs. And it it's just sort of putting you at a disadvantage, I think. Yeah. One thing I have found, especially if you're talking about a big system. So if you're going to apply to a big hospital system or a multi, uh, multi-specialty practice group where you're talking about a lot of people is there's sort of a two-step process to this. There's the HR process, and then there's the actual people who are going to hire you. And the HR process can often be a big barrier because everybody who applies gets their application put in a bucket. And then if I'm the hiring manager of the critical care department and I say, I need a new APP, I call down to HR and I say, hey, pull me some people that I can interview. And the HR people who probably aren't critical care, if they're even medical at all, will just sort of pull five or six at random and send them to you. And unless you say, Hey, these are all awful. Give me five more that you're going to probably pick one of them. So really by blindly applying, you're, you're really leaving it up to fate. Whereas if you know someone, you know, then that hiring manager can say, Hey, pull me this John Smith's file because one of my friends told me he's really good. Uh, and I want to interview him. Yeah, not that someone telling you about someone is a particularly good way of knowing if they're good at the job, but I almost think people don't care. It's like having anything that sets someone apart, you know, sure. puts them at the top of your pile. And um, yeah, like you said, I think any way you can bypass the HR cog wheel part of it is better. Because then if you, you get in that way, you still have to go through that, but they, they'll sort of facilitate it for you. It's more, um, it's just, it's to get the paperwork in place. If you start at the HR thing, God knows where you're going to end up. Absolutely. And I think there's also an, um, there, there's a sort of difference in life between jobs that really just have to, they have to have a body there to fill them. And it's, it's, that's the key thing. Just there's an X amount of need and then an X amount of people. And then there are jobs that are sort of more specialized, a little, maybe a little more flexible and more sensitive to your qualifications. And those are things where it's more important what you bring to the table. And it's a little strange for a lot of people first getting into maybe an APP position because this may be the first time that they are a kind of high value entity themselves, um, depending on your, your job market and things. But, um, you know, if you are, if you're Picasso or something and you're hiring for a painter job, not that that's a thing, but, you know, it doesn't matter if there's an, a vacancy, they'll make a vacancy for you. Like you are the you are the asset. Now, on the other hand, if you're Picasso hiring at uh, McDonald's, they either need someone or they don't. And if they don't, you're out of luck. And I think APP critical care jobs are somewhere in between those. Meaning, generally, for a clinical position, they have a, a certain schedule and staffing needs, and they need this many FTEs, and they need to fill them. And if they're f- fully staffed, they kind of don't need people. But if you, you know, investigate properly, you know the right people and you ask around, there can be wiggle room. Often they're it's kind of between maybe being fully staffed or not fully staffed, like, you know, there's partial FTEs in there. Often there is the prospect of vacancies becoming available, like 
right now they're fully staffed, but they think so-and-so is leaving next year, and so-and-so is probably going on maternity leave, and uh, and uh, and uh. so if you kind of get your foot in there, then it's, it's not like they're creating a position for you, but you are... Uh, let me put it this way. If you were just like li- reading on job websites, there would be no pos- you know, listing there because there isn't a job there. But nevertheless, you could have that job in you know, 10 months or something, especially on longer timelines, not if you're looking for next month. But Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we've, we've had those conversations all the time, right? We say things like, um, we have this student who rotated with us, and they were really great. We don't have a position right now, but... You know, I can imagine that in a year we may need somebody or even in six months we may need somebody and they may be not available. And they're right. They're so good that let's let's see if we can figure out a way to make them an offer now so we don't lose them. Yeah, my my current place has done things like um, people who are not graduating for a little while, they've sort of sort of hired them. They're already nurses, so they're technically working as nurses, but they're actually being oriented. So when they're actually fully ready to work, they're already like halfway there. Um, I mean, you could have positions that are open now and you want someone later and you'll you'll sort of find ways to hold it open for a while. I mean, yeah, the world is sort of a flexible place if you go about it the right way. Yeah. And that's something I think that, you know, most of us don't understand. I don't know about, you know, what the folks who go into PAs in the background there, but, you know, as nurses, we're sort of we're sort of brought up in this world where you're a, a um, you're a peg, right? You're a cog in a machine, and that's how it works. But like you said, when you move up into an APP type of role, and I don't mean to imply that nurses aren't important, but in the grand scheme of things, that's a lot of times how we're treated. Uh, you know, when you work for a hospital that has employs a thousand nurses, you're not special. Um, but now if you're looking for a, working for a group that hires six or seven APPs, you are special. And sometimes the rules are different and we don't always know that. And so you don't appreciate that, that it's not always black and white. Yeah. And I mean, the only way to make that dialogue happen is to find a way in there. So, you know, network, word of mouth, ask around, work your way into talking to the right sorts of people. Um, even just, you know, if I don't know someone, but they've managed to like find my name somewhere and reach out. I mean, that kind of sets them apart from, you know, the other six random people who put in job application. Um, it, you know, it says something. So those are things Absolutely. to explore, yeah. I think. And um, I would say, uh, you know, a, another thing is don't wait until the last minute to look. I, I meet so many students who are in their last semester of school and I say, you know, what are you, what are you thinking about doing after graduation? Do you have any ideas? Do you have any leads? And they're like, no, I haven't really thought about it. Um, you know, I, I mean, I, I've got a couple months to, to be looking. Well, the secret is you, you don't, right. You, you need to get on that now because you need to be making these contacts. You need to, you know, like you were saying, maybe somebody doesn't have an option right now, but they will need somebody in six months. But guess what? If you wait six months until it's t- until they do have it, they've probably got it filled. Yeah, there can be flexibility, but not on short timelines. Right. <laughs> so get get looking early. Yeah. Now that downside is you don't have that opportunity to maybe have all your rotations in school and things like that, which can be really helpful for you and for making connections and things. So sure. some people will try to do things like you know put rotations early in their mm-hmm. clinical time that they think they might have an interest in to give them an opportunity to get to know people and so on. Um, you know, depends on your situation. But. Yeah. So going from here, you know, you found a job perhaps. Um, hopefully, at least so far, you think it'll work for you. But there's this critical period, I think, of your kind of early career, but really your first year, perhaps year and a half, maybe two years, where I think in a lot of ways you are defining what your career is going to look like. And this gets back to what we're always saying, that there's a million ways you can be a a critical care APP. Um, Even, you know, 10 people who all hold that position, they all may be doing very different things and hopefully all very happy with it. But, you know, one person's vision of it is not the next person's. Um, And, of course, this is also the time when your your gamble of this is being the field you wanted and the job you wanted hopefully is paying off and perhaps is not. So I think, you know, 
early on, first period of months is usually focused on just training, getting to know the job, getting somewhat functional with it. And then in most places, you kind of will transition uh, gradually into having more autonomy and being more independent. Um, early on, you're really just focusing on learning the job. And then as you get towards being more autonomous, um, I think you can start to devote a little more attention to thinking about uh, what what interests you in this job. Yes, critical care, but what do you mean by that? What is your vision for what your career is going to look like and what you as an APP will look like? And the two main tracks of that, I think, are what flavor of critical care interests you? Again, maybe you figured this out, but I mean, I think... It's very hard to know this until you get into the field. But there's a lot of types of critical care, a lot of specialties of it. There's different types of medical critical care, a lot of different types of surgical critical care. There's neurocritical care. There's cardiothoracic critical care. There's a whole spectrum of pediatric critical care. Don't ask me anything about that, um, and so on. And a lot of those look very different, and you might love one and hate another. At the same time, there's your your scope in that specialty. And... That may mean that your goal is to be an APP who practices really pretty independently, meaning that most of the things you do in any day, you're making that decision on your own. It's you're analyzing situations and based on your knowledge of medicine, you're you're making calls and following up on them, um, doing procedures and things largely on your own. In pretty much any setting in this country, you will have uh, in some way be working with uh, uh, usually an intensivist, some supervising physician, but that connection may be uh, looser and you know fairly collegial. Or you may be more uh, dependent, meaning you need more supervision. Um, you're doing some things routinely, but a lot of things you're asking for help um, and kind of needing assistance with. And there's, you can be anywhere on that spectrum. I don't care. <laughs> but you should think about that. You should think, am I only going to be happy if I'm pretty independent? Or do I not really want that or need it? Acknowledging that to get that, it, it's it's more work because you will have to uh, seek out a lot more training and experience and knowledge to be able to to support that. Versus, you know, my career is not really my first priority in life. I want to kind of fill this role, and I, I'm okay with it being more in a sort of uh, helper capacity, and that's my aim. But figuring out those things will determine a lot because it may determine where you work certainly may determine um, what you'll need to do to reach that point. Because once you get past your initial orientation, your training and further development is going to be mostly up to you. And to kind of keep adding those rungs to get to a higher level, you're going to need to figure out how to do that. Um, But those, I think, are things to figure out relatively early. Because once you're done with your little, you know, training pathway, you know, like I said, the world is your oyster, but that means it's up to you. Yeah, exactly. And um, there are a lot of trade-offs. Like you you mentioned earlier, there's no such thing as a perfect job. You know, in addition to having to take the good aspects of practice with the bad, a lot of this stuff, you know, I meet people who say, I want to be completely independent. Well, but what does that look like for you? You know, maybe you have the job that is not perfect, but it allows you to have free time to spend with your family or it allows you to live in a place that you really want to live. So I think there's a lot of balance there besides just that work decision. Yeah. I mean, there's real questions here to answer about, you know, even the role of your career in your life. You know, there's some people whose job, and this is common in medicine, their job really is their life. It is the 90% of their priorities and they kind of fit everything else around it. Some people are more the opposite. They just want to come and draw a paycheck and they want it to have a a minimal impact. And if they're making decent money and it's, you know, conveniently located and the schedule works and whatever, that works for them. And I, I really, I, I don't want to try to say that any of these is right. But some of these things are right for you. The perfect job and career for someone else may be the worst thing in the world for you. But you may not know until you give it some thought. Yeah, and often the perfect job or career for you isn't actually perfect, right? I may have a job where I say, well, I really wish that I did more of this. But, you know, to have that job, I'd have to move to this place where I don't really want to live there. 
you know, the traffic is awful in that city. Or um, I would have to work, you know, a bunch of nights and weekends. And, and right now I don't have to do that. So it's all about finding that balance. Yeah. Um, and the other elephant in the room here, which we should at least briefly talk about, is the possibility of doing formal postgraduate training in critical care, a, usually called a residency or a fellowship. I think fellowship is gaining traction as the accepted term. But, um, you know, same idea as physicians who do such training, but as always, less formalized. No real legal recognition of these things. It's just training. It's essentially a job, but focused rather than, you know, you serving the institution, it really focused more on your training. And, you know, usually you don't make very much money. You're trained more, paid more like a trainee. Um, usually you're working long hours and it's kind of a drag, but on the flip side, at least in a good program, you're getting a lot of intense focus, specialized training, which you may not get uh, in certainly not the same amount of time on a quote regular job. And in some cases in any amount of time. Um, I mean, we've talked about this some, I mean, what's your like two sentence, you know, take on uh, fellowship training at this point in your career? So I am the co-director of a fellowship program. So full disclosure, I'm obviously very pro fellowships. I am on the board of directors for the association of um, postgraduate APRN programs. Um, But my bottom line is they're not for everybody. Uh, I think they're really, really great for certain people. They are really good for a lot of people And for some people, they're not necessary. And I think a lot of it is just going to be dependent on what's your background, what's your comfort level with things, and what's your goal? What do you want to get out of your career? Is it worth taking, they're usually a year long, uh, taking a year to do this program? Like you said, they don't pay a lot. Now, I think the pay is getting better. When I came out of school, I looked at these programs, and a lot of times the pay was half of what you could get as a uh, sort of a, a real APP. That was about yeah how it was for us. Um, with our we do, our program doesn't have a fixed salary. It's determined by HR on a on a sliding scale basis based on a lot of factors. But you know it's not bad. It's still a it's still typically a pretty decent increase over what you were making as a bedside nurse. Um. And like you said, you're getting a lot out of it in terms of training. So I think looking at that specifically is important. You know, the other thing to consider is you're taking a job that may make you move to a new city uh, because, you know, wherever you live, you, you know, there's decent odds you can find a job as an APP. But if you want to do a residency or fellowship, you're going to have to move to a place where there is one, unless you happen to be lucky enough to live in that place. And getting a spot in that particular and getting a program, spot in that program, and you like that program, and right. so on. Yeah, most of these programs uh, do not have any guarantee of employment past that first year. Now, we prefer to hire people from our program. We prefer to hire our graduates, right? We've just invested a year in training you to be the best provider we think we can make you. So, if we have an opening at the end, absolutely, we would like to hire you, uh, but we may not have one, um, and so. You may find yourself in a position where you pack up and move to a new city to do a program for a year. And at the end of that year, there's not a job and you have to move again. So that's something to consider. Yeah. I I think this gets back to what we're saying about planning your career out. And I think that there are probably, I mean, I'm not going to say anyone's wrong, but to my mind, somewhat wrong reasons to do one of these programs. And that would be such as I'm having a hard time finding a job and this is what I got. Not that they're, they're usually pretty competitive, but, or I want to feel more quote comfortable doing this job. And that, that can be valid. But what a lot of people mean is I'm kind of scared by working in an ICU. I don't want to feel that anyway anymore. But any job is going to train you and you're going to eventually feel more comfortable if you ever are. I think the right reason to do one of these programs is because you've sat down and introspected and decided you are 95% sure critical care is for you. And your vision of that job is to be excellent at it, to be a very strong, knowledgeable, independent critical care PP. This, I think, is probably the best way to get there. It will 
um, define your career going forward in a way that is, is very hard to do in other ways, especially if you do it early, which I think is what most people do and probably is the best. It is very hard to work for a while and then go back for training and take a massive pay cut to work twice as much and potentially move and later in life, maybe have a family and things. Um, now, this does require a commitment, and that's what you're trading off for. Other than the practical things like the, the work and the pay, you are specializing. And a lot of people, what they like about these you know, PA or MP roles is that you can be more generalist. You can change fields if you want, if you want to change a pace. If you've really committed yourself to critical care with this sort of training, you could still pack up and go get a job in rheumatology, um, but it, it gets to be a little silly. I mean, you've invested in this area. Um, so you're, you're giving something up for it. Um, but it really, I think, depends on if that's what you want. If you've determined this is your future, then it makes a lot of sense. Um, now, the, of course, the other trade-offs, like you said, you can any job will train you. And it may be that you land a job where their onboarding process is really robust and almost resembles a, a mini sort of fellowship program. And then you, you may get somewhat close with that. You also may only find jobs that do a very poor job of training you. And, you know, that's not always obvious until you're in those roles. So this is a, a kind of fraught area, I think. And again, I think the strongest reason to pursue this is if you know this is this is your future and you want to set yourself up for it. Yeah, I'll say as someone who interviews candidates for these on a regular basis, we can um, we can smell a candidate who's just looking for a job. So if you're thinking, like you said, this is a tough job market, I'm just going to apply for everything, you know, you, you give off that vibe when we interview you, and I don't have any interest in, in putting someone like that in one of my spots, right? I want the person, like you said, who has said, I'm committed to a great education. That's why I want to do this. Not just because it's something to, to a paycheck for a while. Um, you know, different programs are going to have different things. Some programs have contracts that you have to sign that you can't get out of. Um, other programs don't. I don't want to. I don't want to give you a spot if, you know, six months from now you're going to jump ship because a better job came along. Um, I want somebody who's who's invested in it. Yeah, I mean, not to, uh, you know, I've been. I graduated what I don't know, six six seven years ago, something like that, and I've been doing full time clinical critical care since then. Um, I do research. I do education. I write. Um, how long have you been doing this? Uh, about five years. Yeah. The, and I mean, you, you, you know, help direct a fellowship program. Now you've, you know, written some textbooks, um, not to, uh, burden people with our visions of the world, but frankly, if you're going to get into one of these formal training programs, this, I think is the sort of career you should have in mind. Yeah. Critical care right. is your, is your, your career. Yeah. Now, I, of course, who knows what'll happen? No one can predict anything perfectly, but I think this is what you should have in mind. You're going to have a full-time career in critical care for the foreseeable duration of your medical career, and you will be serious about it. And that may mean a variety of things, but that's what you're setting up for. That's yeah. the foundation you're building. If it's going to be something more general or divergent or uh, kind of uh, lightweight in scale, it, this just might not make sense. And again, I'm not trying to be judgmental about that. It, it's all about, you know, fitting the right niches. Yeah, absolutely. And I've known people who have done these programs and come out of them and said, you know, I, I don't want to do critical care. I want to go do, I want to go be a hospitalist or I want to go into X specialty but usually those are folks who came into the program thinking, I really want to do critical care. And once they kind of got in, they said, either, I don't know that this is actually for me after all. I didn't, I didn't probably have enough uh, knowledge going into it. Or more likely, uh, they said, you know what, I did this fellowship and during the year I really found that I really love this one particular aspect of practice and rather than doing everything in critical care I'd really rather like going back to my you know question when I was graduating I I'd really rather do cardiac surgery even if it meant not doing the ICU than the other way around uh, so I think you're right though most people if you're going to invest this in it should be I'm in it for the long haul. This is what I want to do. Well, that should be the goal. I mean, right. you know, more power to those people go with God, but I 
in a way, you know, those people would have been better served had they maybe done something different. It's just that we can't be perfect. No one for predicting for yourself. And when you're looking for people to fill spots and stuff, just like when you're hiring for any old job, and this is maybe even more high stakes, you know, you don't always know. Sometimes right. what you think you want is not what you want. Yeah. And I think those people are folks who've made lemonade, right? They got into it thinking that they wanted to do this, found out, oh, this is really isn't for me, but I'm going to take this what I've learned and, you know, use it to be a better X, you know? Yeah. It just, you know, you, you want to be serious about it. It's, it's like, um, think of it like a marriage. Yeah. Not a, not a fling. <laughs> right. You at least are thinking and hoping and planning that it'll be for the long haul. Right, exactly. All right. So that, I think, is looking at the first year, a little more of your career. Past that, let's say maybe past two years, let's call it your mid-career period. You're still doing critical care. You're in this for the long haul. But you're no longer a trainee. You're, you're kind of doing your job. And now, I think, is the time when you get serious about... Not just, you know, critical care or your specialty or what you imagine your job looks like, but um, what what are your particular interests within that field? I think you need to find some sort of niche. And yes, you should be, you know, broadly excellent. You need to be competent in all the things you need to be competent at. But within that, if you're just broadly kind of level across the board, I think it, it doesn't maintain your interest. And um in the kind of role in your department, in your hospital, in the field, you kind of don't add much either. You are fine, but you're not excellent at anything. So I think you want to figure out what the things are that interest you, whether it's, um, I don't know, certain diseases or certain procedures or certain developing areas. It could be uh, you know, kind of research-related things, novel areas. Uh, it could be things related to education. Figure out what, what you're interested in, aside from just your kind of coming into work and rounding and writing notes and whatever, and then develop those and figure out how you can focus on those, build them up, kind of sort of make a name for yourself and uh, create opportunities to, you know, do more things in those areas that are interesting to you and contribute something to, you know, the care of your patients and perhaps to the field of critical care and whatever. And I, I can't tell you what that looks like. <laughs> um, but I think by the, at this point, you know, a few years in, a lot of people have some sense. I don't like this. I like this, whatever. And along with that is really a, an embracing of the idea that, you have to make these things for yourself. At this point, you are well past the point where anyone else is building or paving a, a road for you towards your career development. Nobody cares now. You, and maybe, you know, whatever, your hospital makes you do an online continuing education module to remind you where the fire extinguishers are. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about, you know, you've had your basic training. If your goal for what you want to be doing is much loftier than that, or, you know, in some way specialized, you have to make that happen. You have to figure out how you learn, how you develop, how you gain new skills and new, uh, you know, new specialties and new competencies, and you need to get yourself towards those things. And if you haven't figured that out by this point, you need to sit down and learn. What is it that, you know, is required for you to develop? Um, and this is the time, because if you don't, if you don't keep... Uh, building that slope for yourself and ascending, you will not. Your default is not going to be to keep getting better and to keep developing your career. It will be to stay exactly the same until you retire and die. There is no, you know, inherent impetus in practically any APP critical care position to towards any kinds of change, positive or, or negative. It's just towards plateauing. And if that, again, if that's what you want, then great. But if you do have goals and interests, then you need to figure those out. Yeah, absolutely. And I would say backing up just a second to postgraduate training, this is a good place to start thinking about that too. You know, I tell our fellows, I want to make you an excellent clinician. But beyond that, as long as you're doing the clinical work and becoming an excellent clinician, if you have an interest in research, if you have an interest in teaching, if you have an interest in leadership and management or QI or whatever you want to do, I want to help you with that too. And so our fellows do projects uh, and we'll sort of, you know, you're interested in teaching. Great. Um, you know, come and I'm going to help you get certified to be an FCCS instructor so you can teach the, the APP students, the FCCS course, whatever. 
But, you know, further down the line, like you said, if you're not doing this, nobody's going to do it for you, right? Nobody cares anymore about your development. Nobody's going to spoon feed you stuff. If you want to grow, you're going to have to seek out those opportunities. Now, the good news is the opportunities abound. I mean, there's tons of stuff out there. When I was a fairly new NP, I I had the opportunity to get involved with uh, a a small group of a subcommittee of the American Association of Critical Care Nurses and met a couple of people who I had heard their names. Hey, these are people I see speak at conferences. And I started asking them about stuff. And one of them told me the world, this world that we live in is really small. And there's not a whole lot of people who are taking the initiative to do these things over and above. So if you want to do X, you want to write, you want to teach, you want to speak, you want to, you know, do research, you get out there and start making a name for yourself. And it's, it does not take very long for people to recognize that. And you'll have to turn stuff away. And it's true. I started writing an article here and there and things come from that, right? People email me and would you come speak at our conference? Cause we heard you speak at this conference. Would you, you know, be a guest editor of this because we read something you wrote. Um, and you know, I have to turn stuff away cause I just don't have time to do it all. So the opportunities are there if you go out and look for them. Yeah, and there's you can think about these in terms of the 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 niches. So what uh, you know the areas of medicine, um, or you can think in kind of these these tracks of the the modality. And that was you know traditionally thought of as there's clinical things, there's uh, teaching and education related things, and that can be widely varied. Uh, writing, talking, running courses, things like that. And then there's research. And that's a kind of a whole other area as well. And then there's sort of this fourth little rung that kind of fits somewhere in there, which can be administration kinds of things. And that is stepping a little more outside of clinical medicine, but it's kind of unavoidable. And, you know, some of these may interest you, some of you may, some of them may not, but they're all ways that you can develop. And this may be the point when even though you've committed to critical care and your specialty and all that, when you realize that to develop in the ways you want to, it's time for a new job. Um, I mean, you may have already found a new job. It may be it had been earlier that you realized that, you know, one of the things that you, you thought you were into was not. But certainly this would be the time when you realize this is the critical care PA or whatever I want to become. I, this is not the job for it. I want to do a different type of medicine, or I want to pursue certain interests or things, and there's some other position that would make more sense for it. Uh, and that can be anything from like, oh, you know, I don't like neurocritical care anymore. I, what I really want to be doing is you know, working in a MICU. Or it can be something like, I want to, you know, be building a trauma program. And there's, a, I found an opportunity where I can be involved in that. Or I, I want to, you know, be doing QI or something, or, you know, things like that, actual new positions. Um, and this is this is the time. If you think that you know what you want, then go seek those opportunities, and they're not always at your own institution. Of course, they can be. And I would start there. You, can, you may be able to create opportunities that don't exist if you work with it. Um, but, you know, have an open mind as well to look elsewhere. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I would say for folks who are looking for how do I pick this? So the first thing is don't get locked into what you think you should do. Cause I think I see, and I think a lot of people, a lot of nurses at least go to NP school in the, in the first place because they think it's the next evolution of their career, not really what they want to do. But I think even as APPs, we can get locked into this idea of, well, I've been doing this for a while. So the next thing I should do is try to get a management position uh, and be like the lead APP or the APP supervisor for a group. But, you know, there's a lot of stuff in there that you may not have any desire to do. You're just doing it because you feel like it's what's next. So figure out what you want to do. Um, look for people who can mentor you. Um, maybe those people are people you work with. Maybe people you know. Join professional societies. The Society of Critical Care Medicine has mentoring programs through most of its sections where you can get involved and sort of say, here's what I'm looking for. I'm looking for somebody who can give me sort of 
mid to late career guidance. Um, so get involved with stuff like that and figure out, like I said, what you really want to do, not what you feel like you should do. Yeah. And I, I think the last thing I'll say is that it, uh, one of those things about being an APP compared to something like a physician in, you know, academic medicine, quote, academic, is that the a lot of these non-clinical activities are sort of more accessible to them in that they're kind of playing in that sandbox. It, and it can feel like they're harder to access for us just because that we're it's not as commonly something that is is done by our ilk. So if you're not sure how to get into it, it's you, you got to start, yeah, uh, get involved in things like organizations like the SCCM and things will start to appear for you. But once you get started, it gets easier. Once you start to get on people's radars, get to know people, you, you get on some committee, you know the people on, the, on that committee, you talk about other people, you, you know, interface with other you know, groups and things, you uh, start some new project, which requires you to, to get involved with a lot of different members of your hospital administration or your you know, regional governance or something, things snowball. Once people know you when you know them, then, you know, new opportunities appear. And not that you have to take all those opportunities, but it's just, it's mostly that first step that can be more difficult. If, if no one knows you and you don't know anyone, you are just invisible in the world. If you are a, a player in this sector, then um, you are on the radar, so to speak. Yeah, absolutely. I would say one other thing too, you know, you mentioned our physician colleagues, a lot of physicians in academic medicine have a portion of their job that's sort of built in to do these things, right? So it's expected of you as a uh, assistant professor of medicine to devote 25% of your time to, you know, administrative projects or being involved with professional societies and stuff like that. Whereas for most of us who are APPs, that's not true, right? My job as a bedside APP before I became a involved with the fellowship direction was a hundred percent showing up and providing critical care management of patients at the bedside, the end. So anything over and above that was on my own time. And you know, what I frequently hear from people is they say, well, I mean, you don't get paid for any of this stuff. Well, you don't get paid money, right? But what you do get paid for is you get paid in like what you were saying, Brandon of, making connections, getting your name out, getting known, becoming a player in that field that may or may not ever pay off financially, right? You may never get a job where somebody's going to pay you to do those things. But if that's what makes you happy with your life and leads to increased work-life balance and job satisfaction, then really who cares? Yeah. Now, I think the last career phase to touch on we'll call the late career and this is sort of a interesting and and delicate area i don't think either of us have necessarily hit this point but you can kind of see it out there and it it is almost and um, i'll choose my words carefully but it's almost like this is after you've peaked (laughs) what it's everything up to this point is it kind of feels like you're building something and early on this is you're building your, your clinical skills. And can, again, for the physicians, I mean, if you have a long training pathway into like a sub-sub-specialty, you know, it may take you 10 years to finish training. You leave your last fellowship or whatever. Um, and then what? And for us, it's a little more ill-defined, but sort of the same idea. You know, you've, you've built all these things. What happens now? And I think it becomes less about adding and building things and in some cases more about taking them away. Sometimes, I mean, you're often later in life at this point, you may realize that medicine was the most important thing for you up till now, and now it's becoming a little less so. Maybe you want to focus more on family or, I don't know, your hobbies or something else. You've, you've given a lot of yourself to your career, and not, you don't want to abandon it, but you want to step back on that a little bit, and you want to reclaim some of your time and your focus. Or even maintaining the same uh, level of diligence, maybe you want to change your directions a little bit. And this may be that, you know, we've started talking about refocusing on some non-clinical things. This may be a, a more wholesale change of your pathway into things like 
education or research or or some kind of leadership or something. Um, and th- I don't know why this happens. I mean, you certainly can do a hundred percent clinical medicine your whole career, but if we're being totally honest, I think sometimes people get bored of it if they've been really doing the same thing for a long time. Sometimes people start to feel like it's uh, physically a burden, especially in things like critical care. There's a lot of shift work. You do long hours, often off hours, things like overnights, working on weekends and holidays and things. Sometimes people are are kind of over that. Um, And sometimes, I don't know, it's hard to say. You don't want to say people just want to like slow down or they feel old or something, but (laughs) that's sort of, I mean, from the outside, what it looks like. People want to just kind of chill out in some way. And that may mean something like they, you know, they go into teaching full time and they join a, some kind of academic program and they're just going to be like a professor. Not, nothing wrong with that, but that's the change in their pathway or, uh, or whatever, something that where they're doing less or in sometimes no clinical medicine anymore. And it, I still find it weird that it seems like early on you're all about building those clinical skills, and then when you kind of peek at that, then you some, you kind of don't want them anymore. I mean, the classic example is super specialized attending physicians. You know, you said seven years in your training pathway, and then when you become an attending, you don't do as seems like as much medicine anymore. I mean, some ICUs you might not see your intensivist very much during the day. There's residents or APPs or fellows doing a lot of the work. Doesn't that seem weird? And I don't know. That just seems like the kind of pyramid that a lot of careers follow. Um, And, I mean, you can fight that. I mean, I'm not saying you have to do that. But I think it is a common trajectory. And I think it's good to think about at some point where you're going to go with it. If you are – if this is what you want. I mean, no one can tell you what your career should look like. And if you find at a certain point that you want to change some of your – your focus or in some ways scale back on things, um, go nuts with it. That, no one can tell you that's wrong. But tr- I guess try to do it in a productive way, in a way that keeps making you happy. And it's not purely about subtraction of you being perhaps burned out or just really tired of your job and just wanting to do as little of it as possible. Yeah, and I think I'm with you. I think most of us are at a place early and even mid-career where we say, I just, I can't imagine doing that, right? I love my job. I want to do it all the time. Maybe not all the time, but you know, I can't imagine not doing it. But I think you do get to a point and I'm starting to see, not that I'm there, I love my job and I can't imagine doing anything different, but I can imagine at some point getting to a place where I could just say, it's time, right? It's time to do something different. It's time to scale back. And like you said, it's not that I'm burned out. It's just, I want to change. I want something different. I have a physician friend who says, uh, you know, he's sort of later in his career. And he said, at some point, you just feel like you're treating your own complications, right? You've sort of seen everything that you're likely to see. And you're just doing the same thing every day. And it's not, it's no longer as stimulating. Yeah, I... I think part of this is that early on, you are not as experienced, so you're not as confident. And a lot of what you're seeing, you know, hopefully you know what you're doing, but you you don't you don't know for sure. It's not routine and an old hat for you. Right. You know, you've seen this particular situation twice. So, you know, you, you know what you're doing, but it's still kind of new. But you you get to a, perhaps a certain point where there's it's pretty much everything is routine. Right. And it just has to be done. And I can certainly imagine at that point where there's just not a whole lot that interests you anymore. And you may be willing to, yes, in a broad sense, critical care medicine is still of interest, but you just don't have as much interest in doing the like nitty gritty, nuts and bolts, day to day stuff anymore. You're happy to have a kind of more remove you where you're perhaps, you know, teaching how to do that or in some way supervising it or, or whatever or building new, you know, avenues for it or things like that. I think the only way to avoid that would be to keep modifying or building on what you're doing clinically, adding new avenues for it, you know, introducing new, new uh, therapies or concepts or protocols or or things like that. Yeah. And I think some of it is just going to be very personality dependent. I'm someone who likes variety. Uh, You know, like you, I thought about going into emergency medicine for the variety of things. Uh, And that's why I like the job I have now. I do about half my time in the neuro ICU and half my time in the surgical ICU. So automatically there's some variety. Uh, But even within that, the surgical ICU, 
you know, I might have a liver transplant, a vascular surgery patient, a colorectal patient in profound septic shock, and a ENT patient who had a big flap surgery yesterday who just sort of needs some vent weaning, right? That That's my day, and that's already super variety. Versus I have friends who do things like advanced heart failure, and they do what to me looks like the same thing every day on every patient. But to them, it's very interesting, uh, and they see all the nuance in it. So I guess it just depends on how much you like the variety, how much you like the nuance, how much you're willing to focus on the same thing kind of day in and day out. One other thing I think that's important in terms of late career that really, and I'm going to give, I'm going to go back and give my 18 year old self some advice that I wish somebody had given me that you need to start focusing on early in career is set yourself up to be able to walk away. Right. Because right now you think this is great. Of course, I'm going to do this all the time. And so it doesn't matter that I have a ton of student loan debt. It doesn't matter that I have, you know, expensive home and car because I make enough money to pay for it. But what if you get to a point in your life where you go, I don't want to do this anymore. I don't want, like you said, I don't want to do the nights and the weekends. And I found this job and it looks great. It looks really interesting and it has a really great schedule. But the problem is it's a pretty big pay cut and I just can't afford to do it because I owe too much money to other people. So, uh, you know, if I could go back in time, that's the advice I would give myself is to set yourself up for the potential to do something different at some point in your life and not be dependent on making a certain amount of money. Yeah. It can feel so, you know, mercenary to think about things like finances and retirement planning and stuff, but it really ties into this because when you are not bound by those practical things, there is flexibility to, you know, focus your career on just the things that, that are of interest to you or feel fulfilling. Um, you know, you may say, oh, what I, I think what I really want is to I do, you know, critical care, but only 20 hours a week. And then I'll do this other thing, 10 hours, and that'll be the great balance. But I won't be able to get any benefits because I'm not full time anywhere. So I can't afford to do that. Or, you know, in my case, um, not to share too much about my finances, but I have, you know, significant student loan debt. But because I'm doing critical care, which is almost always at hospitals that are technically nonprofits, I would qualify for uh, student loan forgiveness. Yeah. public service. Um, I have to do this full time for 10 years. So I, I think that will be fine. Um, but it does mean that if in another year or two, when I'm still several years short, I go, I can't take it anymore. I'm leaving and I'm going to work in primary care. I may be out of luck and I'll right. never get the remainder of my period. So in a way, I'm I'm bound up to it. Yeah, And just those are things to to give some thought to. Because, you know, proper planning early may mean that you do have more flexibility later. Just like we were saying in the beginning about finding jobs, the sooner you start thinking about these things, the easier it may be and the more kind of potential options you may have. If you don't think about it until much later, you, you know, you, you, there'll be things you can do, but they may be much more limited by practicalities. Yeah. And I don't know, I don't know what it's like um, for PAs in terms of going and being faculty at a PA program, but... You know, for nurse practitioners, it's a, it's a significant pay cut uh, to go and teach full time, and so I think a lot of people might be interested in it, but say, I just can't, I can't afford it. I can't afford to to quit my job that pays the bills to take a job that I would really love and would be good at, but I just, it just doesn't pay enough. Yeah, and I think this gets back to what we're saying about um, you know building your career in ways that are sometimes not clinical and in many case is not even compensated. This could be when some of that pays off because there may now be opportunities for you to transition into something that, you know, may, you know, you may be compensated for it. You may be able to be a primary uh, job for you that they would not be available if you had not spent the past however many years um, building your your resume in that direction, (laughs) doing things that were on your own time or out of your own head so that now you're, you know, you're an expert in something or you're, you know, a recognized, you know, academic and critical care or whatever it may be. Um, But, you know, if you're like, oh, I'm going to start that now. Okay, well, you're not going to make that your job for another five years. Right. And then I, I I mean, I hate to say too much because like I said, I don't think either of us are at this point, but it may be that you get to a point, for whatever reason, where 
leaving critical care or even leaving medicine altogether is the right thing for you. And like Icky said, I, I, I can't imagine it now, but there's a lot of things I can't imagine that are still going to happen. And all I can think right now is that I hope if we get to that point, you know, very thoughtful about it and you really consider, but if it is true that that is what makes the most sense, we're at least able to do it in a way that is as sparing of the time and investment we've put into this field as possible. So you don't, you don't have this one day you wake up and you just, you're so burned out and tired of it all that you just cut all ties and you drive off into the sunset and no one ever sees you again because you're polishing surfboards in Kauai or something. Um, that is, that was too late to make that change. I think mm-hmm. the right time was two and a half years before that, when you were start, you realized you could see on the horizon that you were kind of, you know, discontented with some aspects of your career and you could steer things differently, you know, scale back on this, change direction on that so that you are, you're still satisfied. And it didn't, it, you know, it didn't, uh, metastasize on you <laughs> because that, I mean, that, that's, that's sort of wasteful. When you, when you throw out the baby with the bathwater, it's better if you can preserve what you can, whatever that may mean for you and, you know, continue to contribute, you know, all the skills and expertise and the value you can give back to the field and, and still get whatever rewards you can from it that makes sense for you, um, without, uh, you know, without just hating it. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. All right. What else should we say about careers, Brian? Well, I think we've covered it pretty well. Um, there's a whole lot more, of course, that we could get into. But like you said at the beginning, I can't tell you what to do with your career. Only you can figure that out for yourself. Hopefully this has been helpful. And, uh, you know, it's a lot of it's just our sort of two cents worth. But um, hopefully it's given you some things to think about if you're early on in your career or a student. Uh, or even if you're late in your career and looking for some, some sort of guidance for what's, what's next. Yeah, you know, we we said in regards to many things that there's a million right ways to do most things in medicine. There's just certain wrong ways. I think the main thing to take away from this may be some of the the pitfalls to avoid because those are clearly not good things. As far as right ways, whatever works for you. But I do think you have to acknowledge that it's different for everyone and you're not going to know even how to begin to build your career in the direction you want if you don't figure out at least as well as you can what that looks like. All right, Brian. Good talk. Um, And we'll see you again in a couple weeks. Yeah. So as always, everything we say on the show is for educational purposes only. And these are just our opinions. They don't represent the opinions of our employers or anyone that we're affiliated with. Thanks for joining us.